Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author and pastor teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. Father, we do praise you because you are the only living God. Besides you, there is no other You alone reign over heaven and earth. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had created the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are eternal, sovereign, just, wise, and good. And we praise you for it. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ by whom and through whom we know these glorious perfections as they have been put on full display at his cross. Thank you that in him justice and mercy, righteousness and peace have met and kissed one another. And you have opened for us a new and living way to you by the blood and righteousness of Christ. We thank you the opportunity to gather together publicly and corporately to sing praise to your high name and ask that you would deepen, strengthen our worship as we consider your word together now. Be our teacher, lead us to the truth, help us to look into your word as if looking into a mirror. Help us to see ourselves as we really are. And then help us not to be forgetful hearers, but doers of the work, so that we might be blessed in all of our ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 14 is our text for today, and I want to read to you verses 3 through 9. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and therein the reading of God's Word is this. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it on over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to retell the story of the text to you this morning. 
from it, I want to ask a question. What is Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus worth to you? Enough is enough. The representatives of the religious establishment have had their fill of the shenanigans of this upstart rabbi from Nazareth. He must be silenced immediately, permanently. That's the background for the text. Mark 14, verses 1 and 2 says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be uproar from the people. The religious leaders determined that Jesus immediately needed to be put to death. They wanted to find a way to snatch him secretly and kill him. But this was virtually impossible as the city of Jerusalem swelled as the pilgrims gathered to celebrate the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. But they find a way to get Jesus. Drop down to verses 10 and 11 of Mark 14, and you read, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here we find a conspiracy against Jesus. In the verses preceding our text, there is a conspiracy perpetrated by outright enemies of Jesus. In the verses after our text, there is a conspiracy against Jesus perpetrated by fake friends of Jesus. Our text is sandwiched in between as we see an example of true devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. This story is like a shining star on a dark night. This story is like a beautiful painting sitting amidst trash. This story is like a glowing jewel set on top of a dark backdrop. In the surrounding verses, we see treachery of humanity at its worst, but in our text, between the treachery, there is an example of a devotion that shows humanity at its best. Here, 
the setting of the story and the story itself presents to us both an important warning and a wonderful example. The warning of the text is that there is still a conspiracy against Jesus. There is still a conspiracy against Jesus by outright enemies outside the church and fake friends in the church. Not the same kind of conspiracy. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the one who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to Hades and the grave. The Lord Jesus Christ died once, but he lives forevermore. Yet there is still a conspiracy against the name, authority, work, gospel, church, hope, and word of the Lord Jesus Christ. The example of this woman in our text in critical times bids us to look in the mirror at our own lives and ask this important question, what is Jesus worth to you? There is a fable about a beggar who heard that the king was passing through his village. He positioned himself strategically, and as the king rode by, he cried out for mercy, saying, Your majesty, can you do an humble servant a favor of mercy? The king paused, looked down at the beggar, and said, First, you do something for me. Offended by such a request, the poor man reached into his satchel, passed his sandwich and his piece of fruit and a few coins that he had, and he reached down at the bottom and grabbed a few crumbs and angrily placed them in the king's hand and ran away. But later, when he went into that satchel again to eat his meal, he reached past the sandwich and the fruit and the coins and felt something else in the bag. When he pulled it out, it was several pieces of gold in the exact size and shape of the crumbs he had given to the king. And with tears he lamented, why did I not give the king my all? That fictitious story communicates the message of this biblical truth with one important caveat. Our king is worthy of our best, not merely because of what he might do, but because of what he's already done. 
in light of who Jesus is, and in light of all that he has done for you, what is Jesus worth to you? This is the question that the text begs to be asked and answered as you see a in the text, a sacrificial gift, an unfair criticism, and a divine affirmation. Let me walk you through these verses. In verse 3, the story begins with a sacrificial gift. A sacrificial gift. Verse 3 says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Jesus is in Bethany, which is several miles, a village, a sleepy village, several miles away from Jerusalem where Jesus could retreat from the crowds. He has friends in Bethany. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But the text says he is actually here in the house of one named Simon the leper. We have no clue who Simon the leper is. But there is reason to adjust or modify his name. Leprosy was the most dreaded disease in Israel. It was the AIDS of its day and highly contagious so much that the law of Moses legislated that a person who was diagnosed with leprosy could not come among common or clean people. If this Simon the leper is having a dinner party at his house, it has to be because he is Simon the used-to-be leper. Could it be? that he was miraculously healed of leprosy by Jesus himself. Whether or not Jesus is at this dinner party, and the text says in verse 3, he is reclining at the table. That language is significant. In the ancient world, they did not sit in chairs at a dinner table as we do. They, they reclined, literally, as the text says, on small couches where their feet were away from the table, and they would lean on one elbow and eat with the other arm. This is how Jesus and everyone else is reclined at the table. All of the basic features here that introduce the story show us a normal dinner party until some scandalous events start taking place. The first is that a woman shows up. The cultural world of the ancient Near East was a man's world. And a woman, unless she is a servant or a prostitute, would not be allowed to be the, a part of a dinner party like this. But somehow this woman has crashed the dinner party. And Jesus permits it. Jesus permits it because this is not just some woman. 
The story here in Mark 14 is also recorded in Matthew chapter 26 and in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, verse 3, John explicitly tells us that the woman of the text is Mary, Mary of Bethany, Mary the sister of Martha, and more importantly, Mary the brother of Lazarus. John 11 tells us, died, and when Jesus showed up to Bethany for the funeral, he was four days late. But yet, he raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. And John 12 will tell us that this is why, this is why the religious leaders determined they had to get rid of Jesus immediately. Raising Lazarus from the dead made Lazarus a living billboard about the power of Jesus. They determined they got to get rid of Lazarus and they got to get rid of Jesus. This woman who shows up to the party is not just some woman. Do you get that? She's not just some woman. She's a worshiper. The Lord's been good to her. She, she would be wearing the, the clothes of mourning had it not been for the fact that Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. And because the Lord had been so good to her, when she heard that Jesus was in town, she crashed the party she wasn't invited to, determined to do something for the one who had done everything for her. So as he is reclining at the table, verse 3 says, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Huh? The significance of those details is in the next phrase. Very costly. She had a bottle of ointment, perfume, if you will. Not just any bottle. It is nard. In the tr translation of the Bible I grew up with, it is called spike nard. Literally, here, it is rendered pure nard, undiluted nard. Nard with no mixture. And so precious is it that if you drop down to verse 5, the onlookers declare that if you took this bottle of nard and sold it, you could get 300 denarii. 
The denarius was the Roman penny, and it is what a common agricultural laborer in the field would get for a day's wage. The, the common blue-collar worker in the ancient world of Palestine would, would receive about 300 denarii, watch me, for a year's work. She had a bottle of ointment that was more than what many people would make annually. No? Let me try it another way. Mark chapter 6 records the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men with just five loaves and two fish. The crowd had been following him all day. They were tired and hungry. And the disciples say in Mark 6, verse 36, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And in Mark 6, verse 37, the Bible says, but he, Jesus, answered them, you give them something to eat. And the disciples said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? To feed a crowd of thousands would cost 200 denarii. Somehow, this woman had a bottle of ointment that was worth 300 denarii. And it's in an alabaster flask. Alabaster is a precious jewel. But the flask is significant because it was a long-necked bottle. The only way to get access to the bulk of whatever was in it was to break the neck of the bottle. There was no top, if you will, to open or close. This is not perfume to be used day by day. This is a family heirloom. It has been sealed in an alabaster jar. To open it is to lose the value of the ointment. She crashes the party, comes to where Jesus is reclining, and breaks open the alabaster flask and begins to pour it on the head of Jesus. John 12, verse 3, says she poured it on his feet as well and adds another scandalous element because in the cultural world of the ancient Near East, a woman was to never take down her hair in public. For that matter, that's the truth in the Middle East today. But this woman not only showed up to a party, she had no business being that. With a bottle of ointment that was worth a year's salary, and she poured it all on the feet of Jesus, and then she let down her hair and used her hair, if you will, as a towel to wipe the feet of Jesus. Uh, 
And the point of this scene, this act teaches us that true devotion to Jesus should cost you something. If your devotion doesn't cost, your devotion doesn't count. If, if you're truly devoted to the Lord, if you know who he is and what he has done for you, it, it ought to cost you something. Unfortunately, we live in a day and time <laughs> where this is foreign to many of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. I understood very early as a teenage pastor that my assignment as a pastor is to be a care giver for souls. But over the years I've discovered that a pastor's job is not just to be a care giver for souls, but also to be a caretaker of words. It's the pastor's job to care for words as well as souls. Big words, theological words, heavy words, profound words, deep words like prayer. you ain't careful, somebody will steal that from church. And you got to go find it and bring it back. Words like forgiveness. Words like love. Generosity. Service. Here's another word that, that somebody needs to go back and, and get because we've lost it in the church. The word sacrifice. We don't know what sacrifice is. To see real Christian sacrifice. To see real Christian sacrifice, you got to go back in time in church history. Or go outside our culture to other parts of the world. On my way here from our 915 service in Orange Park, I'm just checking the news, and hear that in a city in Iraq, don't remember the name, in a city in Iraq today, church bells are ringing. Because ISIS came into this Christian city and took over this Christian city and, and destroyed the temple. And, and they ain't been able to have worship in there since 2014. ISIS was just defeated there yesterday, and the next morning they started ringing the church bells. Y'all ain't listening to me. All around the world, there are people that are sacrificing their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here, we don't know anything about sacrifice. Far from sacrifice, we don't even know what it is to be inconvenienced for Jesus. I mean, this is how we pick a church. 
what's convenient. Many people pick a church that ain't too inconvenient to drive to. Need to be close enough because I don't want to drive that far. Oh, and they better have enough parking because when I get there, I don't want to have to walk that far to get in. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We, we, we pick what worship service we will go to by what's convenient. Oh, I'm glad they got a 1045 service there because ain't no way I'm going to church at no 745. We, 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 we pick what ministries are important to us. This act teaches us that true devotion to Jesus should cost you something. If your devotion doesn't cost, your devotion doesn't count. If, if you're truly devoted to the Lord, if you know who he is and what he has done for you, it, it ought to cost you something. Unfortunately, we live in a day and time <laughs> where this is foreign to many of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. I understood very early as a teenage pastor that my assignment as a pastor is to be a, a care giver for souls. But over the years, I've discovered that a pastor's job is not just to be a caregiver for souls, but also to be a caretaker of words. It's the pastor's job to care for words as well as souls. Big words, theological words, heavy words, profound words, Deep words like prayer. If you ain't careful, somebody will steal that from church. And you got to go find it and bring it back. Words like forgiveness. Words like love. Generosity. Service. Here's another word that, that somebody needs to go back and, and get because we've lost it in the church. The word sacrifice. We don't know what sacrifice is. <laughs> to see real Christian sacrifice. See, real Christian sacrifice, you got to go back in time in church history or go outside our culture to other parts of the world. On my way here from our 915 service in Orange Park, I'm just checking the news and hear that in a city in Iraq, don't remember the name. In a city in Iraq today, 
church bells are ringing. Because ISIS came into this Christian city and took over this Christian city and, and destroyed the temple. And, and they ain't been able to have worship in there since 2014. ISIS was just defeated there yesterday. And the next morning, they started ringing the church bells. Y'all ain't listening to me. All around the world, there are people that are sacrificing their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here, we don't know anything about sacrifice. Far from sacrifice, we don't even know what it is to be inconvenienced for Jesus. I mean, this is how we pick a church. What's convenient? Many people pick a church that ain't too inconvenient to drive to. Need to be close enough because I don't want to drive that far. Oh, and they better have enough parking because when I get there, I don't want to have to walk that far to get in. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We, we, we pick what worship service we will go to by what's convenient. Oh, I'm glad they got a 1045 service there because ain't no way I'm going to church at no 745. We, 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 we pick what ministries are important to us. And, to, and shape our whole quote-unquote Christian experience based upon what's convenient to us rather than what will honor Jesus. And I just got to ask, church, what is Jesus worth to you today? Is he worthy of a sacrifice? One of my life verses is 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. <laughs> David has sinned by numbering the people. He was counting people when he should have been counting on God. God punished the entire nation because of David's sin. But then God in his mercy said that if you make a sacrifice to me, I'll forgive you and restore the people. And he, he goes to the, to the house of one of his citizens and asks to use his threshing floor in order to make an offering to God. Just picture the president showing up at your house asking to use your backyard for an hour. What would you say? Just, <laughs> you the president. Sure. This is what the citizen said to David. My house is your house. Use whatever you need or want. But David says in 2 Samuel 24, 24, you got to charge me something. Because I cannot offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. In light of all that the Lord has done for you, 
what you do for him ought to cost you something. Let me ask you, has he been good to you? Has he saved you? Has he blessed you? Has he forgiven you? Has he opened some doors that's been closed and then closed some doors that should have never been opened? Has he watched over you? Has he given you enough? Has the Lord really been good to you? If you know who the Lord is and what the Lord has done for you, church, I'm just telling you, if you know it, you ought to be willing to break open your alabaster flask. If you know he's been good to you, you ought to be willing to pour it on for his glory. If he's been good to you, you ought to be willing to let your hair down to honor him. There is a sacrificial gift, but would you also see the unfair criticism? Mary is so consumed with devotion to Jesus, she's not paying attention to the onlookers, but the onlookers are paying attention to Mary. Verse 4 and 5, and there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Let me start here with the unfair criticism. Mark says in verse 4, some people criticized her. Very discreet language here to protect the innocent and the guilty. He says some people had something to say about what this woman did. Just some people who were watching. They, they, they thought this was wrong because they didn't know Jesus and they didn't know Mary and they didn't know what Jesus had done for Mary. This is why your devotion to Jesus must be sincere. Your devotion to Jesus must be sincere so that your devotion to Jesus can be steadfast. You can't let your devotion to Jesus be determined by people who don't know what the Lord has done for you. Matthew adds something in his story. Matthew 26, verse 8 says, it wasn't just some generic people, it was disciples. The disciples who should be encouraging devotion to Jesus is criticizing her sacrificial gift. They are acting this way because they are following bad leadership. If you are taking notes, you should jot down John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, where John is not trying to be discreet. He tells us who the culprit is. John 12, verses 4 through 6 says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this 
ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor, John 12, verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he put in it. The complaints are coming from a thief who is the treasurer in Jesus' ministry. And whenever he was counting the offering after Jesus got through preaching, apparently Judas was saying, one for Jesus and one for me. <laughs> one for the gospel and one for me. And, and, and when he sees this, he complains, and apparently others join him in saying, why was this ointment wasted? Hear me. Whenever you sacrifice for Jesus, that will be the world's response. What a waste. If you do it for your family, for your career, for success, for fame, for prestige, if you do it for yourself, the world will celebrate you and praise you and honor you. But when you sacrifice what is valuable in your life to honor Jesus, the world says, what a waste. I'm a 43-year-old man. I've been... I've spent my entire life in Christian ministry. Trusted Christ as a boy, been preaching since I was 11, started pastoring my first church at 17. My life has been spent in Christian ministry. And to this day, I'm still asked when people hear details of my biography, do you regret getting into ministry so early and missing out on your youth? I've heard the question enough that I've got a packaged answer I can pull off the shelf. And my answer is simply this, I only regret that I wasted so much time. And I mean that. Friends, the world has nothing to offer us. All of the pleasures of the world are like cotton candy and may taste good, but it has no substance and it does not last. So many of us waste our lives on the things of this world. And it just makes sense. Because this is what the world does when it's time to give up something for Jesus. What a waste. What a waste. This, this could have been given, he says, to the Poor. It's funny because with every drop that's pouring out on Jesus, apparently Judas's mental calculator is adding up how much money is being lost because this woman did something for Jesus. His statement about the poor, listen to me, is an indictment up against Jesus. He is literally saying here, church, the poor 
are worthy of that much. Jesus is not. What a waste. But I want to tell you what the world calls waste, Christ calls worship. It's never a waste if you do it for Jesus. Have I got a witness? What, what, what a, it's, never, it, it's, it's never a waste if you do it for Jesus. It, it's actually worship. Listen to me, friends. W worship is not about what you get from the Lord. Worship is about what you give to the Lord. And to get it right, you got to know who he is and what he's done for you. And if you know who he is and what he's done for you, nothing is too much for Jesus. This is why worship is excessive, loud. That's why people tend to stand up and clap and cry and sing and run and dance. You say, it don't take all that. It don't take all. You can worship without, without that. Well, let's, let's just lay aside. If you think that worship is civilized, sophisticated, then you ain't read your Bible. That, that, that ain't a race thing, a culture thing, a denomination thing. That's a biblical thing. But, but let's lay aside biblical theology. If, if, you don't, if you don't think your worship for the Lord should be lavish, extravagant, and costly, not only do you not understand Worship, you, you don't understand what it means to be in love. Love is extravagant. Love is costly. Love is not utilitarian. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. It's non-utilitarian. Or, or a simpler word for non-utilitarian, it's a waste. A glorious, royal, holy waste. That's what it means to be in love. Brothers, when you buy flowers for your wife, not to get out the doghouse, but just because flowers. <laughs> yeah, don't just because. You're buying flowers that'll die in a few days. But you do it as an act of love, and it puts a smile on her face. And in a few days, those flowers are going to die. That's love. L love sings and dances and writes poetry. It, 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 well, let me ask this. What's, what's the purpose of kissing? There's no benefit, no usefulness to kissing. But if you ask lovers why they kiss, they'll look at you crazy. They'll tell you, because we in love. Help me hear somebody. And I'm trying to tell you, if you love the Lord, you won't be measuring out what is the least I can do without the Lord being offended. You'll be saying, what is the best I can pour out to the Lord for all he's done for me? Yes, you will. There's a divine affirmation and I'm done. That's verses 6 through 9. 
She is criticized by the onlookers, but Jesus says in verse 6, leave her alone. Why are you troubling her? She's done a beautiful thing. You called it a waste, Jesus called it beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. You will not always have me. This is not about Jesus versus the poor. Jesus here, people take this out of context to say, you will all, there will always be poor people. That is not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, it's not God's will for there to be poor people. He set up his law so it wouldn't be poor people. In Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verse 4 and 5, the Lord says, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I have commanded you today. If we just live according to God's commandment, there would not be poor people. Well, what is that commandment? Well, I can just give you two big ones. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And here's the second one. Love your ass. Come on, talk to me here. He's not dooming certain people to be poor. He has stated that the only reason there are poor people is because we live in a society where we think about ourselves and not other people. And he's not merely even saying that worship is more important than charity. That's not even the point. The point here is not about the poor versus Jesus. The point here is, verse 7, always, beginning of the verse, not always. He know who he's talking to. He's talking to Judas. Oh, now you're concerned about the poor. You've been holding the money bag all along. You could have helped the poor anytime. There are always poor people around you that you could have helped, but you really wasn't thinking about them. You won't always have me. Here is a stewardship of opportunity. It is saying this, friends. You should do the best you can for Jesus while you can. Do what you can while you can. That's what Jesus commends her for in verse 8. She has done what she could. So what that you can't do what other people can do? That's not your business. You, you may be more gifted and experienced and talented and wealthy and educated more all of that than I am. That, that's not my responsibility. My duty before God is just to do what I can. And if you do what you can, the Lord will be honored. She, she did what she could. 
It was unimportant to people, but it was important to Jesus. He, he says, she's anointed my body before my burial. In verses 1 and 2, they wanted to kill Jesus immediately, but it's the Passover. So they've decided that they got to wait till Passover is over so the crowds won't riot. But it is the will of God the Father. This is why you just got to, even in this election season, you just got to trust God. Because even in the midst of human evil, there's divine sovereignty that, that reigns over everything. They, they got evil plans. They're going to wait till Passover is over so it won't be a riot. God brings Judas into the picture. God's behind that too. Because it's his will that the true Passover lamb be sacrificed on the cross during Passover feasts. And, and the, the real lamb of God will die at Passover. And the Passover is coming so quickly, and the Sabbath is coming so quickly, that they have to get him off the cross and put him in a borrowed tomb, and they never get to anoint his body. And that day, they didn't cremate the bodies, they just anointed it with spices. They never got a chance to anoint the body of Jesus until on the third day, Mary and some of the other women showed up at the cemetery to give him a proper burial after the Sabbath and the feast. And when they got to the tomb, the stone was rolled away. And an angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He ain't here, but he rose just like he said he would. Jesus says, y'all don't understand what's going on. You think she just poured oil on me. But it means more to me than it does to the crowd because this is the only anointing I'm going to get for my burial. By the time they get to do it, I ain't going to be dead no more. Y'all ain't listening to me here. What you do for Jesus may not look like much to others. But he sees what you do. He sees the cost. He sees the sacrifice. And he will reward you. In fact, Verse 9 says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Well, that's a prophecy that came to pass. Because for the past 40 minutes, you've been listening to me talk about this woman who poured oil on Jesus. Here we see the economy of Scripture. In Scripture, what is most valuable is that which lasts the longest. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In fact, that 21st verse of Matthew 6 says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is truly valuable is that which lasts the longest. And I stand to tell you, whatever you do for Jesus, it'll last. 
If you give thanks to his name, if you serve his cause, if you spread his gospel, if you advance his kingdom, if you help his people, if you invest in the next generation, if you are generous to the poor, whatever you do for Jesus will last. Jim Elliott, 1952, went to Ecuador to spread the gospel among natives. 1956, January, he was brutally murdered by the people he came to bring the gospel to along with four fellow missionaries. They found, however, in his journal the epitaph for his life. Jim Elliott wrote, he is no fool who loses what he can't keep to gain what will last forever. You're not a fool. If you give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. You may build great cathedrals, large or small. You may build skyscrapers, grand and tall. You may conquer all the failures of your past, but only what you do for Christ will last. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. If you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight and God bless.